The powers of architecture, science, and teaching combined today on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. Hey there, we've got a couple of people here today. Hi, Pius. Hi, Rachel. And hi, Kelly. Hi, good to be here. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, listeners. I was trying to say hi. That's right. That was Rachel Ferrig. I'm Pius Wong. And third was Kelly Foster. I'm your host and an engineer and educator. Rachel's your co-host and educational leadership pundit. And she's also a past colleague of today's guest, Kelly. Kelly Foster is an experienced engineering and architecture teacher in Round Rock, Texas. He's also a practicing professional architect. How does he do all that? We sat down with Kelly at the spacious new Central Library in downtown Austin, Texas to talk about all this and more. Listen to our talk next So Kelly Foster is our guest. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Austin Central Library. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Kelly Foster. I am not an engineer. I'm an architect. Did that for 15 years, um, registered in two states, and uh, seven years ago became a high school teacher. So I'm, since then I've been teaching. I t- taught a little bit of science and math, taught uh, lots of architecture classes some graphic design classes, and then several engineering classes. I have a piece of uh, Kelly's... Uh, graphic design on a, on some oh, really? clothing that I own. Whoa! How does... the, uh, there oh, were. I forgot about that. Did you forget about that? Yeah. Uh, there were a group of us lady teachers who were doing a fun run, like a color run, or you know, one of those things where it's like a five k and they throw powdered dust at you or whatever. And uh, we wanted logos on our t shirts. It was just like three of us and. Kelly helped us out. So it had like the has yeah, the hazardous the, like, materials. The caution sign the with the caution diamond. And yeah. And then a girl with her ponytail streaming out behind her. Yeah, it was something about scientists. Running run nerdy. Running nerdy, that's right. Yeah, running nerdy. <laughs> so it's like, Is that a play on a music lyric or something? Yeah, riding dirty. Run yeah, riding dirty, riding nerdy, running nerdy. But the important thing is that the runner had a ponytail. We thought that that was an exceptional touch. It was a scientist with a ponytail. That was the cool thing. We loved it. You invited me out a little while ago to see what some of your senior engineering students had designed, right? Right, right. And I I was pretty impressed. It's kind of cool what high schoolers are capable of, I feel like. And what were some of the things that you did with your students in that class yeah so this was this is a class called engineering design and development it's all seniors they've all taken three or more engineering classes at this point and um it just kind of gave them a chance to um on small groups groups of two or three come up with find problems they wanted to solve and spend pretty much a full semester researching those problems and then the next semester coming up with solutions building prototypes all that kind of stuff um so it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. This was my first year to teach it. I've been teaching a civil engineering and architecture class for several years. Um, so this was kind of expanding that, that engineering thing for me. Um, it was so much, so much fun. Like they, uh, seeing the problems they were trying to solve, uh, when they, um, when they were exploring what kind of problems to solve, it was when floods were happening. Oh, and so right. a lot of the yeah. pro- problems they were solving had to do with that. Um, and also there were wildfires happening. So they were, they were mm-hmm. kind of watching the news and saying, oh, well, there's this problem and this problem. And sometimes they'd come up with a problem they wanted to solve. And it's like, oh, somebody's already solved that. Or 
this isn't something we can do and build a prototype in our classroom over the course of a year. So it was really, it was fun kind of seeing him explore that. But um, it was cool because my, my background is in architecture and the, the, the difference between architectural design and engineering design is like, it's mostly the medium you're working in, not the creative process. The creative process is very similar. Um, so just the thing I've learned from teaching design in all kinds of capacities, graphic engineering and architecture design, is just kind of teaching kids to slow down, teaching them to um, really research and understand things before they start coming up with solutions. Mm-hmm. They kind of think, oh, I have to come up with a solution right now. And the first solution I could come up with is the only solution I'm ever going to come up with. Um, so getting them to like slow down, calm down, try lots of things. Um, it's been really, you know, it's really fun to see them learn that, but it takes them, takes them a while to get a hang, get the hang of that. Yeah. That was one of the things I was wondering because you have taught design in so many different disciplines. Do you find that you said it's basically the medium that's different, but are there any other differences? Like kids seem to face that same problem then in other classes too, about Mm -hmm. like just going with their first idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the same. I mean, I, I get really different kids when I teach graphic design versus architecture versus engineering. You know, they're more comfortable right brain to left brain for the most part. They don't, they rarely fit the stereotypes of those things, but um, it does, it does tend to be different kids. And, and, uh, but yeah, the, the issues they deal with, I mean, they're, you know, dealing with engineering problems are different than graphic design problems, but they all have those things of, you know, wanting to come up with their first solution, not really wanting to develop things. Some of them, when you get kids that are sort of high achieving in all their other classes, they're looking for the right answer mm-hmm. and getting them in places where it's like, um, there's not a right answer here. There's multiple good answers and there's not a, there's not a right one. And getting them to think that way is really, yeah. it's a good challenge. So. I think that's a, a common theme that we've come across um, when Pius and I used to work together on the engineering curriculum that we were working with, the teachers often would say that I have students who are typically not successful or they haven't experienced as much success academically, and they shine in those engineering and, and architecture and other courses mm-hmm. because there isn't one right answer. Yeah. And they, you know, if you can establish that good rapport relationship with them, they'll go way out on a limb and they just do such amazing things. And then the kids that are very stereotypically straight A's, um, very good at maybe rote activities or whatever, they really, really struggle in those classes trying to put together creativity and flexibility and freedom and not and the unknown. I guess it's that whole being comfortable with going forward, not knowing whether it's going to work or not. So, yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah, I really see both of those things happening. I mean, the students in, in really all of my classes where they they realize they get to, you know, they're, they're not doing that, not necessarily doing great in all their other classes, but they get to come to one class where they really just get to explore where, um, you know, it's, it's a, I try to make a safe and supportive environment for them so they can, they can mess up, they can struggle and it's okay. And they can help each other and, um, that kind of stuff. And there's a, there's a kind of slow and carefulness to it that they tend to they tend to to enjoy and they tend to want to be there and they tend to like sort of want to be in that environment and really try things out. Um, and really the, the sort of 
sort of overachieving student that's used to kind of getting everything right. Um, once I, I mean, I've had a few students that are pretty extreme in that, that way. And once they realize, oh, I just get to play. I just get to do stuff. I just mm -hmm. get to, you see them just kind of open up and, and really develop and really grow fast. Um, you get, you kind of get that sense of they've, they've found this new freedom. I wonder if uh, the kids in your more artistic classes just come in assuming that they can play or that they can explore different ideas rather than in, in an engineering class. Yeah, I mean, especially in when I'm, when I'm not currently teaching graphic design, but those those tended to be the more sort of students that were used to art classes and that kind of thing. And getting them to be disciplined in their work was more of a job and more of a challenge. So you have to do both. In, yeah, okay. getting them to be disciplined and getting them to explore at the same time, making sure that the problem you're solving is the actual problem that you were trying to solve in the first place and not just a thing you wanted to do. I mean, that's a struggle in all the classes. But. Yeah. So because in your engineering class you had your students work for a long time mm -hmm. on these projects, you kind of already tackled a problem that other people have have told me about. Like I've spoken mm -hmm. to another guy who is trying to mentor high school students and younger to create their own design projects, very similar yeah. to what you've been doing. And his problem was they found that they don't have as much success unless the students or these young people choose a problem that they are really invested in or interested in from the start. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it kind of just fizzles out. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you found a way to have your students find that. How do you foster their, their selection of a good problem in the first place, a good design problem? I mean, so, something I'm working with a, with a curriculum that's given to me and was went through training with, with Project Lead the Way. But a, a lot of it is um, just getting them to... Um, there's a, a whole process we go through where they throw out kind of all the ideas of things they're, they're interested in. I kind of, um, over the course of several classes, I give them several prompts. And I say, okay, think about this and come up with 10 to 15 answers to it. And I, you know, it's been a while, but it's... Um, I tend less to, like, I think one thing, one tendency for teachers is to say, like, what are the things you're interested in? Um, and I tend to try to, I think teenagers are really good at being all about themselves and what they're interested in. And I don't think we need to encourage that. <laughs> they're they're oh, often okay. awesome at that. <laughs> Good, but your, your students were tackling like how to save flood victims cars. Right. Cause or yeah. yeah. Cause but none of them came into the classes being really into flooding car issues. Yeah. So I was more like thinking, okay, what issues are out there? Sort of get them to turn out of them outside of themselves think about things in the world that, that fascinate you and, and things that you see that concern you. Is there a community you care about? Is there a, is there a, um, you know, just kind of getting them to think really outside themselves into the community, into um, other people's lives that aren't their own. So there's still, it's not that it's not a thing they're interested in. They're still interested in it. It's not, they just haven't come into the class. I mean, you know, I feel like if I asked them like, what are the things you're interested in? Most of them would say video games. <laughs> I, like, True. <laughs> I like video games too, but that's not, it's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I, I get it. One of your most successful, not most, but one of your successful groups uh, designed something that was kind of for them. They were a bunch of it's athletes, yeah. right? And they, yeah. they designed like a splint kind of, or a, a flexible brace for a, bro a jammed finger or something. 
Yeah, yeah. There was two groups that did different, like... Biomedical type. Yeah, biomedical type things. One of them was dealing with um, a finger, like... Basically, with with finger injuries, they talked about so buddy taping. Yeah, using buddy taping to immobilize fingers, kind of the standard thing. And they wanted to come up with a better solution for that. Um, and another group, um, one of them had like had knee problems for a long time, and and you know was a big guy. And like, there's either sort of like off the shelf knee braces or really expensive knee braces, and the off the shelf ones don't fit him, and then the others are too expensive. So kind of finding a middle ground in that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they were working with sort of things that issues they've dealt with in their own lives. Like it at least started yeah. with them. So they yeah. could be selfish, but you've yeah. managed to push them into something where yeah. it's helping more than just them. Helping more than just yeah. them. It's really, yeah, teaching them that it's, yeah, you matter, but it's not all about you. That's an interesting teenage <laughs> lesson overall. I feel like non-engineering teachers should push that as well as they do. A lot of people should push that. <laughs> You also mentioned that this is a newer class for you. You had yeah. also been teaching the architecture and civil engineering yeah. classes. Yeah. What's the difference between that set of classes and this design class? Um, that class is really a survey of, it's probably misnamed because it's not, it's not all of civil engineering. It's basically the parts of civil engineering that connect with buildings. Structural engineering. There's structural engineering. We do surveying. Um, we talk about framing and, and there's a, there's a whole lot of just sort of the technical we're, we're kind of going back and forth between the design aspects that an architect will deal with and then the more technical aspects that an engineer would deal with do they do the uh, design problems or design projects in that class too yeah i kind of i mean i have a, there's a given curriculum for that but i've restructured it a little bit so that the first semester is all about getting to the point to where they can design a house so that they they both understand like what matters to the layout of a house, but also they've they've really understood the framing issues and the the um, the thermal issues and all sorts of technical stuff having to do with it. And then the second semester is all focused around designing a commercial building. So um, they're kind of designing this building, but they also go through the process of selecting a site and selecting a program. And then they do the land surveying. We go outside, and this year it was like. 28 degrees outside when we went out to do the land surveying. It was awesome. If they do it now, it wouldn't be any better. Yeah. Right. Well, it's true. like 100 degrees. Yeah. This is true. Um, yeah, I, I had my observation on the day that we went out. And did it. it was awesome. It was so cool. Yes, you're doing fine. I got to go back inside. That's exactly what happened. Um, Tip for future architecture and engineering teachers. How, how um, to guarantee that you will be invited back as a teacher. Yeah. Punish your administrator <laughs> by making them go outside in twenty-eight degree weather. So noted. <laughs> Got it. But um, yeah, so this, so we're in that when they're in the commercial building, they've they've both planned the building and put it on the site and that kind of stuff, and they've designed all the structure for it and actually surveyed the land that it would go on and that sort of stuff. And it's really, I, I find I get because you know students at our school they can just go straight architecture and take those classes from me or they can go the engineering route and take this class so i find i get a lot of students in that class that are trying to make up their mind between architecture and engineering which is where i was that was what i was trying to figure out in late high school even into college i started out as an engineering major switched to architecture but um by the end of that class they usually know because they 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 can look at the stuff they've done and are they more comfortable proficient when they're exploring the design of a building or when they're in the weeds of a calculation to figure out the the loads on a beam and how that transfers down and by the end of the class they can look at that and see and i have lots of students that have said yeah i kind of 
was thinking I was going to go this way and I decided to go this way from your class in both directions. Like I have students coming in thinking they wanted to be an engineer and switch to architecture and, and, and vice versa. So as a professional architect yourself, you see probably directly the differences between your professional work and what you have to teach. Are there any differences? Like, do your, your kids really get authentic practices in architecture and engineering, you think? Yeah, I mean, I really gear the class so that it's as much as possible. That I mean, there's, there's limits. To, I mean, these are fields where it takes years to develop the skills and stuff, but I try to give them enough of a taste of each to know if it's something they want to do. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, they're, they're in all the classes, they're using the software they would use in the industry. Yeah. Part of the reason that we're meeting in the Austin Public Library, the new downtown Austin Central Library, is because the architecture here is somewhat unique for, it for is. Austin. I just realized that the staircases remind me of Hogwarts. <laughs> and it would be really cool oh. if they moved. It would be. But they look like it. Yeah, from yep. this angle, I'm thinking of Escher's drawings as yeah, well. Same. <laughs> I love it. There's a there's a 19th century artist named uh, Piranesi that did these sort of networked prison type things that has a very similar look to it really? as well. Yeah. I'd love to look that up. Yeah, we need to get your opinion on this as the <laughs> residence architecture eye here. <laughs> So we're all somewhat new to this space. Yeah, this is my first time I've been here. I've been meaning to come since it opened, what, six, seven months ago? ago. Yeah, six or seven months ago, I think. Yeah, I haven't been here either. It's my first time in the building today as well. So what are your judgments or criticisms (laughs) or, or joys, I guess, that you see? Well, I was just struck by like, there's no, you come in, I came in probably the back entrance, but there's, there's kind of not a... There's not a clear, it can, it's kind of porous around the outside. You kind of find your way in. Mm-hmm. There's a sign, the elevator that I came in, there's a sign that says specifically enter on XYZ Street. Um, and I chose to ignore the sign and just take the <laughs> elevator to the second floor because I knew that's where Pius was. And there was an entrance right there, not on the street that the sign directed me to, but it was open. I mean, the doors weren't locked. Um, you do walk through some sort of sensor detector. I don't know if it's for books or for metal or for both, um, but it was open. Mm-hmm. It's accessible. Yeah, it feels very much sort of porous into the city, and you just kind of find your way in and find your way around, mm-hmm. which is really different from the old Central Library, this 1970s concrete brutalist building where you come in and it's like all there all at once. Yeah. Um, and I, I came in, before me, I came in probably 45 minutes early just to, just to wander around and kind of wander the building. And it just struck me that it's very story-like. It's very, like... What do you mean, story-like? Like, like, like you feel like... like Hogwarts. Like, like, like Hogwarts, oh, yeah. Harry Potter, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah like a story. Yeah. Like, you kind of... There's a kind of narrative. You just kind of wander through yeah. and find your way through. You don't see it all at once. It kind of unfolds as you come yeah. through it. You kind of find your way into the, the big, tall atrium Choose space. Choose your own adventure. And, Austin Public Library style. I feel like we're doing some reverse engineering of the design that we see because we don't, we haven't spoken to the architects of this, but I feel like you can kind of figure out what the intention of it is. And that's interesting that you point out the multiple entrances. We're sitting at another entrance, which I don't even know if that's supposed to be an entrance. (laughs) And what's, what's the point of that? Like, why would designers or architects want that? ambiguity in the exits and and entrances 
Um, well, Lake Flato designed this. They're a San Antonio-based firm that's been doing great work for decades. Um, I was real excited when I found out they would be doing this building. I was like, I don't really know buildings of this size that they've done. Um, I, I don't, you know, just haven't kept up close enough with their work. I know that I know a lot of houses that they've done that are just just gorgeous, um, and they're very. Um, they've always had a kind of regional bent um a lot of a lot of local materials sort of picking up on local building types and um you know bringing them into all of their work um and uh but but they're still it's still modern like the the spaces are very modern the materials are a mixture of really textural traditional materials but used in a used in a contemporary way um so i just get the sense that the kind of porosity to it it feels like I was reading a, a, an interview with one of the principals recently, and um, he referred to it when he, when he came in, and it was mostly done. He said, well, "This is this is the largest lake house we've ever built." Oh, <laughs> it is. It, it really yeah. feels yeah, like that because of all the yes, windows and there's a dock right the, up yeah. there, rooftop garden, sort yes. of decks everywhere, every yeah. place you want to go and hang out Concrete and rest and, and tile and, and right. Mm-hmm. People feel comfortable to like sit on the couch yeah. and and. Talk, record podcasts, yeah. and they're they're there with their drinks and their their family, yeah. their little kids. There's just kind of a casualness to it that's um, that feels I th- to me. It kind of makes me feel like I'm t- feel like slowing down mm-hmm. and it's comfortable. Resting. It's yeah. inviting. You want yeah. to hang out mm-hmm. as opposed to other libraries that you mentioned, the old one. And I know Rachel, you were talking offline about another library that you had known and like. Yeah how this is supposed to be inviting people to make a little bit more noise mm-hmm. as people listening to this podcast might notice speaking of the noise actually there there is noise where we are right now mm-hmm. but i noticed that it seems intentional that there are specific places where you can make noise and it's okay and mm-hmm. then as soon as you walk into a certain part of the library it becomes naturally quiet, <clears throat> quieter mm-hmm. whether it's because people don't they feel like they shouldn't talk or if it's the way the layout of the walls are i'm wondering if you noticed any reasons why or how we can control the the sound quality in the different spaces yeah i mean i, I think there's there's two parts to that i think there's the and this is where my architecture and engineering brain come in at the same time so uh, for the listeners we're in a space that i think is five stories tall um and has different it's the, the upper levels are all kind of cut out. You can see across all of the stairwells as you go through. You can see the different floor levels coming out. You kind of meander your way up through the stairs to the upper levels. Um, and then when you go into the side rooms, some of which are the, the stacks for the books or different reading rooms or that those kind of things, um, they're all one-story spaces. Um, the scale of them is very different. And I think the just the kind of as you move through it, I think it makes you feel like, okay, I've gone from this big space and now I've gone into this small space. It makes you, you kind of recalibrate how you, oh, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. how you think and function in that. Yeah. Of, of your surroundings. Like yeah. the size of the space itself. Cause we yeah. are in the larger space yeah. and the materials are harder too. I realize, mm-hmm. So it's going to, ba- the sound is going to bounce off yeah. more. Yeah. Um, um, but then also they'd have done things here, which I was reading about and don't remember all they are, but it, it's difficult, it's difficult in a space like this to not make it seem, to not make the acoustics feel like a, an echoey gymnasium. 
So they've done quite a few things to to sort of deaden the sound or create zones. Yeah, the, it, there's is a, the the texture of the wall that yes. we're sitting next to that contributes to That's the sound quality. That's probably part of it. Like, I mean, it's a hard surface. It's 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 a, for people that can't see this. It's a it's I think it's an ash wood that's in horizontal things, but it has a, a it's out at different levels. It's sort of some of them stick stick out from the wall. Some of the some of the strips are recessed. Um, but anything you can do in a space like this to um, vary the surface keeps all the, you know, if you think of like the worst acoustics are like a high school gymnasium where there's a big solid wall and all the sounds bouncing off the same surface at the same time. Um, so in a space like this, if you can, if you can um, both having at this at the small scale of this wall, having that kind of texture, but also sort of breaking up the space as you go up, it's also going to break up a lot of the sound. Um, and I guess that makes me think in that smaller, in the smaller areas with the books, mm. the bookshelves themselves are probably yeah. muffling a lot of that. They're pretty effective noise. sound deadening. Yeah. yeah. Actually, while I was up there, I also saw the technology petting zoo, which yeah, is not a phrase I've ever heard before. Had you heard of that? Is that no, I saw, I saw it when I went by. It, was, it looked like fun. Yeah, they had a 3D printer and a Google Echo or something, whatever it's called. I'm, I'm mixing my technology, <laughs> Amazon, <laughs> like whatever, the and thing the you talk to. Amazon Echo yeah. and Alexa. And they had a bunch of things She's you could play with. In our house, we have five Echo devices. Yes. <laughs> Whoa, can they talk to each other? No, I can't wait for that to happen though. <laughs> and they're going to plot against. <laughs> a lot of libraries are bringing on like maker spaces and kind of spaces to explore. In fact, the library at the high school I teach at, we're. we're um, fitting out one of the rooms as a maker space should be ready ready in the fall. But yeah, 3D printers, laser cutters, sewing awesome. machines, large format printers. So your engineering students stuff. will use all of that stuff as well? Well, a lot of that stuff we already had in my classroom. So they're they're pretty proficient okay. at a lot of that already. But some of the equipment they have is a little better. So they, uh, and, and it also lets to do more than one thing at a time because 3D printing is slow. Right. But uh, yeah, a lot of the stuff that you saw the prototypes are, those were like... Um, some like the knee brace lie that was done on the laser cutter it was like with the acrylics. nylon or was it a, an acrylic material well the the, the sort of clear bright yeah. colored plastic that was an acrylic cut on the laser okay. cutter and then a lot of the stuff was sewed like with the beginning of the year when i was teaching the class they were like they're coming up with ideas and they're like mr foster what if we you know what if we have to sew something i'm like <laughs> okay i've got the budget we're getting a sewing machine and i'm going <laughs> to teach you guys how to sew and they're like you know how to sew it's like yes yes yep. i do so i was teaching football players how to sew I was wondering when I saw them awesome. present, it was a bunch of football players and they're presenting like how they sewed everything and they, they tensioned everything just right. So that, that was kind of neat. It was awesome. And likewise, you had another team who um, they made a face mask actually yeah, to protect yeah. against. Yeah, that was a, a brilliant little project. Right. Yeah. 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 They were looking at um, how in, in wildfire situations, people tend to go to the hardware store and get the masks that are just made for painting and they're completely ineffective. And then there's these really expensive masks that are very effective at, at, for the for the <laughs> part of the problem with this class is they had eight different projects and I was trying to keep up with all of them and all the students were experts and I couldn't mm. honestly become educated in all the stuff they okay, so it was great to see them once they realized I didn't know all these things it was great to see them um, take it on and uh, you saw when they presented like they, you could ask them questions about it and they could just answer they just knew the stuff because um, they realized you know that was that was their thing um but yeah with these masks they they were trying to find something that would be affordable 
people would actually wear and use but would be effective and so it was it was two young women and they they explored all of the things like i think there was part of theirs was sewing and then they had a, an idea of a, how the thing gets clipped on yeah they had a, a ergonomic yeah we're both problem. pointing to the back of our heads right. at this point <laughs> they had a um how do you how do you tighten the mask so that it's tight enough to be effective and is still comfortable and they came up with they used the idea of the way like um uh, trimmers for yard for yards yeah, the way yeah. when you weed bump eaters. yeah weeders where you bump the bottom and they loosen mm-hmm. um they looked into how the, the the just the geometries of that and between the 3d printer and the laser cutter and some string and some sewing they made an effective version of that so you could just twist it to tighten it or you could just bump it to loosen it if it got too tight yeah. and it worked and it was beautiful. And they did it in really cool colors as well. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Was I was impressed. Coming soon to an Ace Hardware yeah, near you. It was really amazing. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. The, the two, I think it was two, the two young women who yeah. worked on that. Like, I remember asking them all these questions. And you were saying how that project involves so much. There's the mechanical side, the biomedical side. And I asked them a question about, like, the chemical environmental side. And it's like, in my head, I was thinking, how could you possibly create a chemical filtration system on top of all this other stuff and it turns out i mean they didn't because of the limited time and budget but they still knew about they it. knew how to do they it. could answer the yeah, question they very much knew how to do it yeah and some of it was they were using off-the-shelf things that they'd found that could work and be adapted to this but yeah, yeah they knew impressed. they knew all of it they're brilliant and you talked about how you as a teacher you can't really truly be an expert in all these different mm-hmm. fields and projects and you're relying on the students to be the expert how do you get over that being not in control really in some that, in that some was ways. really to me it's it's crazy fun i mean i get to learn all these things all the time i just get to be curious but i just remember early on in the class the students are used to when a teacher asks them a question they're trying the teacher's trying to get the student to give the answer that the teacher wants and it often not always but often and in this case i would be asking these students questions and they'd They'd answer and then they'd kind of look at me like, is that the right answer? And I'm like, oh, you think I'm asking you this because I know the answer. <laughs> no, I'm asking you this because I have no idea. Uh, and, uh, and they're like, oh, okay. And they just ran with it. And it, as far as I know, nobody was making things up. But they had to show a lot of their research. And they had, right. we brought in, they knew we were bringing in people that would know things. Not yeah. just me, yeah, we had, but like yeah. people who knew what they were doing. Um, <laughs> And asking them questions, and so that was cool. And I feel yeah. like your students still felt a little bit of pressure. Yeah, and I tried to. Um, this is where I think my my architecture background was was helpful for it, because as an architect, you in school and as a professional, you are presenting to people all the time, and it's in it's often very high pressure kind of situations. And the only way to get better is just to do it a lot. Um, and uh, so I really design the class so they will have presented to to me or their peers many times in a safe environment so that they're very comfortable with how it. many is many because i know i only saw one time but then how much did they prepare for that well they had given not I, actually in the future i'd like to do more but they had like they'd given a major presentation at the semester mark that was their final exam was a major presentation defining their problem um, but even between that i would have them present to other groups um, different phases of the project, present their research, present their, their when they were um, exploring design solutions, present all the solutions to, to other people. So they were just really like being in front of people talking about their stuff yeah. was really just a big part of the class. And I had them come up with both a, a complex problem statement plus an elevator pitch. So mm-hmm. 
when somebody just asks you, just asks you what's your problem about, you need to be able to answer them really quickly. And I also taught them a lot of visual communication stuff. Um, we had them, I had them make posters and do, do slide presentations and gave them a lot of, basically I was teaching them graphic design and, mm. and public speaking and random things. I'm like, there's a lot of stuff in this class. I've heard enough engineering engineers present stuff that I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking they don't teach this in the college level. So I probably should get this at the, at the high school level. You're starting you. to do it a little more, but you're probably right so. for a lot of professional engineers today. So I thank you for that. I think that <laughs> in general, engineers probably could do or create a better reputation. Yeah. For I mean, I, I've, I, as an architect, you work with engineers all the time. Sure. Um, yeah. And I have, there's, there's been engineers that I've worked with that have just, where we'll go and as a team, we'll go present to a city or a zoning review board or something like that. And there's, there's engineers that can present really well. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Why did you choose architecture over engineering? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I went to school, you know, I, all these classes I teach, I, I try to teach the class that I wish I'd had. I did take drafting in high school and it made me think I, I like I decided I want to be an architect and then I took drafting. I'm like, okay, this is good. I kind of like it, but is this all you do? And so that's when like I was a junior, senior in high school. I didn't know what an engineer did. All I knew was, all I knew was if you're good in math and science, you should be an engineer. That was about the extent of my logic. Um, went off to, to A&M. Um, I did fine in my classes. I liked my, I liked my math and science classes, loved calculus, took, took all the calculus I needed to be an engineer before I switched to architecture. Oh no, you did all that work. <laughs> so yeah, different, differential equations didn't really help me. doesn't really help me much as an architect, but I loved it. Um, but I just like, I was, I was doing fine in them, but I was enjoying my humanities classes a lot more. And I was like, I really think I need something more creative. Um, more, I create, I, I, I need to yeah, not use that term. I don't like the way people describe like artsy things as creative and engineering things is not creative. I agree. It's, I needed my creativity to be in the aesthetic realm as much as in the technical realm. Um, and so that was when I was, you know, that's when I switched went back to what I'd wanted to do like is like in eighth grade and went to the, went to the architecture school. So, and I, you know, the, the, um, the studio environment of architecture schools because architecture education is unique. And I remember when I started getting into K through 12 education, everybody was talking about project based learning or problem based learning and where you're given a, you're given a problem to solve and it's open ended and you know, it's designed so that over the course of the project, you learn the material you need to learn. I was thinking, this is the way architecture has been taught for like 200 years at least. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like all, you always do design projects, I guess. You're always doing design projects. And all the projects are designed to where you set the variables by, by the, the problem you create. You set the variables so that students need to explore this one thing or two things or three things. As it, and they get more complicated as you go along. Um, but yeah, it's like. This is I get this. This is how I was how I was educated, and I loved that as a college student. And I've really made all of my classes into design studios in this way, um, including my engineering classes. They're very much they're much more modeled on my architecture classes than on anything. I, I mean, I didn't I wasn't in engineering for very long, but it was they're modeled on sort of the way an architecture studio is taught. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned that you started teaching later. I mean, you started yeah. out as an architect. So why did you get into K-12 education? Um, well, I was, um, I had worked in the field for a long time. I had done residential architecture. I'd done commercial architecture. I had worked in Houston and Boston and Austin and, uh, and, um, this little thing happened in 2008. I was designing houses for a living and then the economy crashed led by ah, housing. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, that was a good, a lot of architects did a lot of soul searching at that time. <laughs> and I was like, well, what do I, the, the, the stuff I was doing kind of fell, fell apart. Um, and uh, I was like, well, what do I really want to do? I, you know, there was the option of going back to work for a big firm. I was, I was, I had a, had a partner and then I was working on my own for a little while. But, um, but like everything I enjoyed the most in the field had been like mentoring younger people, educating clients about stuff, even volunteering in my own kid's school. Like the things where I just came to life were where I was teaching. I was like, really the idea of like teaching teenagers is the most appealing thing to me right now. And, um, but then I thought, oh, yeah, but nobody teaches the things I do. Nobody teaches architecture in high school. Um, so I got, I found a certification that's math, physical sciences, and engineering that I had all the right classes for. And I, yeah, I could teach geometry or physics or something like that. Those are all very close. I mean, yeah. I can think of millions of examples from my work as an architect that uses both of those things. Um, but then stumbled on a high school that wanted to, it was a new high school and they wanted to start an architecture program and they just had one architecture class, but they're like, Hey, we could also have you teach science. And that was when I ended up teaching with, with Rachel. So this we is the same the high same, school that you're at right now. Same high school. Yeah. Where Rachel was. That's, that's, right. that's the high school that's right. I came from. That's yep. right. Yeah. So I've been there for seven years now and like the architecture program, I started from scratch there and. Yeah. Oh man, so Rachel, since you saw, you saw, <laughs> you saw Kelly when you teacher. were new, actually, yeah, this is a good question. I don't know, did you see each other's classes at all, or how, did you um, know that Kelly was a new teacher? I did. We, we knew he was a new teacher, but he was a great teacher, but my uh, interaction with him mostly was as a science teacher. Um, so I had been the lead of the professional learning community for physics, um, and so we interacted a lot for that, um, doing common planning. But I was always just curious what other teachers were doing in their classrooms. So on my conference period, I would just pop down there. Like, I mean, he wasn't the only teacher I visited. Yeah. But if I had free time, I would go see what's going on in his classes. What are the kids doing? What are they talking about? What's he doing differently than I do that I can, you know, steal as a um either a better instructional method or something different to try. So um, we didn't work like super closely together. We weren't partner teachers or anything, but definitely. We almost were. I almost was a physics teacher. And then they said, no, you're teaching no, chemistry. You're going to teach like, chemistry. Okay, I know, I know yeah. physics better, but so, but <laughs> in, in fact, I think he was teaching chemistry because I said I uh, could not. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I, I so it's your fault. That my, my uh, discomfort with the, the curriculum could not benefit the kids as much as someone who either was more comfortable or had more experience with the content. So, so I was the one that was more comfortable and more experienced in chemistry. <laughs> or maybe just I had, more I had willing. Student taught I don't in a know. chemistry classroom yeah, for two who's weeks. Who's teaching chemistry now? That's what I want to know. I ended up, by the end of the year, I loved chemistry and like, oh, I'd like to keep teaching this. But by, by that point, I was 
the architecture program was growing and I was also online to start teaching engineering and graphic design yep. at that point. So I really just taught chemistry for one year. But yep, the campus I loved really, it. They, um, they really expanded their um, career and technical education options for students. And there was, um, I mean, there was a push. There was a need. The kids were asking, parents too, but the kids were asking for more architecture, more engineering, more technical mm-hmm. um, programs or more technical classes so um, he came at a great time he was able to kind of build that program from scratch or from the ground up he he did have a couple of partner teachers for a couple of years but um, I mean really I think he's kind of been the foundation for for a lot of that program it's been fun because it's uh, it's it's felt like um, it's it's felt designing a a lesson, designing a, a class, designing a series of classes, a four-year sequence of classes. They're all design projects. Yeah. And like when I got into teaching and they started talking about how you design this thing, it's like, oh, it's design. Cool. Mm-hmm. I know this thing. What this is, is, yeah, this we've had this discussion. Yeah. One <laughs> of the things that I present about um, when I'm instructing other educators or principals or superintendents really is that the continuous improvement cycle Mm-hmm. is a design cycle. Yep. So, and the parallels, I mean, I've even gone so far as to pull different design um, design processes or design cycles, just images, Google search, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, and plunk it right on top of what does continuous improvement look like. The words are different because yeah. in every industry has their own buzzwords, but it's the same exact thing. Yep. Yep. How do you think you've changed as a teacher then since then? Or even as a professional, maybe as an architect, you've changed. I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Uh, how have I changed as a teacher? Uh, Rachel noticed like it. Barbara I, I know. know. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to. I gonna mean, get that deep. first year. <laughs> that first year, I was like the chemistry department was kind of new. It felt like we were building the ship in the water. Yeah. Um, and I was teaching four sections of that, and then creating the architecture program and teaching a teaching an engineering class and um that was new and i just i felt like i was running around like a chicken with my head cut off the whole year and was just classic first year teacher uh, yeah three preps two of which i was making up by myself yeah and that was he he was a first year teacher on a brand new campus the campus you came the second year the the school was open yeah so the school had only been in operation for a year it still wasn't filled to capacity because we didn't have seniors that first year or the second year either um and so he you know he's dealing with a younger student population first year teacher out of a, a an alternative certification program was, so the time that you spend in insane. classrooms is not you're not if you go through an alt cert program you're not spending four years in nope. different classrooms you spend observing weeks, and yeah, being yeah. mentored yeah. Um, and then on top of that they didn't say okay well you're just going to teach this one subject and we're going to give you easy kids to deal with. And no, 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 no. He had none of that. That's going to be a different discipline from what you thought. And also, yeah. you probably have two classrooms, and you're going to have to go from oh, one they gave to me the other. Three at back first, and, forth. and then I whittled oh, wow. it down to two. Yeah. 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 No, it was it was an insane and year. And it's a big campus, so yeah. y- yes, you have to go from that end of the building to this end of the building <laughs> in four minutes. Yeah. When I visited your school, it's a big school, it's a big, big Texas yeah. school, bigger than all the schools yeah. I'm used to. Huge. It is huge. 
So at this point, like, I mean, I'm teaching, I taught five preps this last year. I'm teaching five preps, slightly different preps next year. Down from, I was teaching seven for one or two years. Um, some, of them was just like and some of them stacked, some of them double blocked, but these were all CTE classes. They're electives and they're, the pace is very different from a, a core That's class. I, I consider like probably three preps for CTE classes is equivalent to one core class. Um, Cause there's, just really he different. doesn't have the high stakes testing. Oh, and the standards that you have to meet for chemistry versus the engineering, it's just different. Right. Yeah. Right. So the standards are still outlined in the Texas essential knowledge and skills, but they don't have the star test. Yeah, which is the the state test that your kids have to take. Yeah, so a lot of it for me is coming up with projects and then coaching them through projects. That sounds like fun in a way. You're designing cool learning experiences. He's the cool teacher. (laughs) I'm the cool teacher. Yeah, I was the one looking for the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) More teachers should become that cool teacher. I'm the very nerdy cool teacher. (laughs) I feel like you didn't just jump in blindly, though, because you did talk about how you had volunteered. I had 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 worked with kids a lot, yeah. So that helped, I'm It helped, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I just really, teenagers crack me up. Um, I, I think they, they either that, drive yeah. you crazy or they crack you up. I don't know that there's or any place between both. Or sometimes, I mean, sometimes at, the, at same, the same yeah. time. You have to laugh but, instead of crying, yeah. I guess. No, I just have so much fun teaching them. It, it's as I become, as I've been doing it for longer, I'm kind of more, more comfortable in my own skin. And a little, I think I feel a little more natural in the classroom and the students respond better to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm authenticity is helpful mm-hmm. and um we're going to talk about you like you're not here now um kelly has always been uh able to establish a really um really healthy relationship with his students where they do feel comfortable taking risks in his classroom offering uh solutions that you know maybe they don't know what the outcome will be but um i mean anytime i would go and observe his classes the kids were learning and they were having fun. They were well behaved, and you know it was it was very evident. So, thanks. <laughs> Props to Kelly. Kelly's blushing right now. You know, I think that uh, we'll have to leave it at that. Kelly, thank you so much for talking with us, and I think we learned a lot about architecture and what it's like to transition into teaching. And uh, I hope we can talk again sometime. That'd be great. This was fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Kelly Foster, engineering and architecture high school teacher and professional architect, joining Rachel Farrig and myself in today's conversation. Check this episode's show notes for a link to download a free digital copy of a poster that Kelly designed for his classroom several years ago that says, Caution, science teacher at work. Yes, the stick figure in Kelly's poster has a ponytail. That poster link, along with a bunch of other episode notes, are also at the podcast website. Visit k12engineering.net. That's k12engineering.net. Please help me share the show with other professionals, educators, and parents. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Finally, a special thank you to my supporters on Patreon. Whether it's a dollar or $20 a month that you've pledged, your donations have kept this podcast going. I'm extremely grateful. If you'd like to tell me that you're a listener or a supporter of any of my projects here at Pios Labs, then you can send a dollar online at patreon.com slash Labs. 
Our closing music today is from the song Yes And by Steve Combs, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is a production of my independent studio, Pios Labs, here in Austin, Texas, where I work on several digital projects like this show. Thank you for listening, and please check it out again soon. Pius here again. It's time for the post-show notes. Thanks to everyone who voted for us to be a part of South by Southwest and South by Southwest EDU in March 2019. Rachel and I are extremely grateful for your support. Not sure what the results are yet, but whatever happens, we'll update you. And regardless, no matter how it goes, we are truly grateful for all your help and all your belief in us. In other news, I might finally have the time and ability to overhaul the podcast website a bit to make it more user-friendly. You can keep tabs on that project over on Patreon, where I'll have some posts just for Patreon supporters, so that you can join me on nerding out on web design and user experience and full-stack development and all that. Hope to get to that uh, and get all that finished by spring. Thanks. Thanks.